This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Today's passage is Genesis chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the end could not support both of them from dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go the right. Or if you take the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. This was, thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre which were at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Amen. Amen. Today, I, I want to take uh, this opportunity to kind of go back to, I guess, what you might call the basics of Christianity, looking at what a life called by God looks like. And it's good for us to do this frequently because often in our walk, we are very forgetful. We forget God, who he is, and what he's promised us, and what we have in this life in Christ. So I want to ask you guys a question. What does a life called by God look like? What does it look like, a life called by God? And we're not talking about a specific individual call on your life, like uh, you're called to be a teacher, a parent, a son or daughter, a business owner, etc., but a call to faith that you've been called into a new relationship with God through Christ and his work, that you are now a child of God. What does that life look like? Another way to put it, another way to frame it is, how does God work in the life of those he's called? Now that you are his, how does he work in your life? Today's passage, we have a passage uh, about Abram, a man who was called to walk a life of faith. 
And as we look at this little snippet of his life, we'll get a picture of what a life called to faith looks like. And we're going to work through this, today's passages with these three points. The life that is called is a life of grace, a life of providence, and a life of promise. We live a life full of God's grace, a life of God's providence, and life of God's promise. So first, let's look at life of grace. In the beginning of chapter 13, in these first four verses, we have Abraham leaving Egypt and coming back into the land of Canaan. And for us to really understand what's going on in these first four verses, we have to take a step back and look at chapter 12. Chapter 12 is a book or is a chapter that is filled with amazing promise and amazing failure. What we have is Abraham being called by God for the first time to come and leave his family's home, to come out of the land, and God said, I'm going to lead you into the land that I will show you, and I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to make you a blessing to the earth, those who bless you I will bless, those who curse you I will curse. God is making a covenant with Abraham, he's saying that through your family, through your descendants, The seed will come, the seed that will come to save the world, Jesus Christ. He received this great promise, and he's considered the father of our faith. So immediately after, as Abraham receives this promise, he leaves his father's house, he takes Lot, his beloved nephew, and they go to the land of Canaan, where they set up an altar and they worship God. Great start to the chapter. But then sentences later, what happens? Trouble comes. Famine comes into the land. And now Abraham, being a good man of faith, what does he do? He remains and he toughs it out? No. He takes matters into his own hands and he flees to the land of Egypt. Rather than trusting God, he's starting to trust himself. And now that he's in Egypt, he actually makes a complete mess now that he's down there. The Egyptians thought his wife Sarah was a beautiful woman. And so being scared that the Egyptians would do something to him because of his wife, he lies. He tells of Egyptians, Pharaoh's household, that his wife is actually his sister. And he not only lies because he's in fear, he ends up giving his wife away to Pharaoh's household, basically saying, do what you will with her. Father of faith, with a great start, receives this call goes to worship, and then immediately he fails. He doesn't trust God. He's filled with fear. He's a liar, and he gives his wife away. And conventional human thinking would lead us to conclude this. God would look at Abraham and say, "Um, I don't think this is working out. I'm going to find someone else. You know, you don't quite make the cut. I gave you a chance. You're kind of blowing it. Let me find another man for the job. That's how we would think, right? But that's not how God dealt with Abraham, and neither is that how God deals with his people. Look down with me to read verses 1 to 4 again. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Despite the mess he made in chapter 12, God is still protecting him, blessing him, and he's bringing him back to the land of promise. By our standards, when he left to Egypt, God should have ruled him out. He's like, okay, you're done. But rather than say, God, even though he 
distrusts him, even though he's disobedient, God actually blesses him and watches over him. It says God provides Abraham with wealth, livestock, silver, and gold. Not, not only that, God allowed him to leave Egypt safely. After what he did to Pharaoh and his household, Pharaoh should have had his head. But he's able to leave with his wife, and not only with his wife, with all his pockets filled as well. This is complete grace. It is God who has been watching over him despite his failures. So if you read chapter 13 today, it might look like Abraham has it all figured out, that he's a faithful man of God. He's worshiping, that he, he travels to the land of Canaan. He worships God. He has the humility to trust God and give Lot this better piece of land. But if we look at the whole picture, we see Abraham, who in chapter 12 fails massively. Chapter 13, he's back on track. He's back on focusing on God. And then we'll see a few chapters later that he's going to fail massively again. And this will be the pattern. But God will continue to show his grace upon Abram. He will continue to reaffirm his covenant with him. Why? Because God is gracious with those who he has called. He is a gracious God. We can read chapter 13, and we can take away these lessons that Yes, we need to be worshiping God. Yeah, we need to trust him. We need to be generous with our relatives. We need to avoid conflict. We need to not hoard our wealth, but give it to those around us. And these things are not wrong. But if we just focus on these things, we start to look at Genesis 13 through a moralistic lens. These are more things that we need to do, we need to do, and do well. But if we look at the greater picture, of how God is actually working in Abraham's life, the more beautiful thing that we can glean from these first verses is that God is incredibly gracious to those he calls. That's what Moses wants to convey to us when he writes Genesis, when he writes this story, that in our walk with God, there will be times where we'll be like Abraham from Genesis 12, completely untrusting, disobedient, but then we'll also have days where we'll be like Gen Abraham of Genesis 13, worshiping him, showing love to our neighbors. And the Christian life is this. It's a constant struggle of going back and forth between these two. And instead of putting the, putting the burden of let's be like Abraham in Genesis 13, let's be like him, we need to see that God is gracious with those who stumble and falls. God's grace brings Abraham back into a place of worship. And that's what a life being called by God looks like. That his grace is with us in our failures, and his grace is with us when we are doing well. Our inclination is to think that when we're only living Genesis 13 and doing well, that God's love is upon us and that we're close to him. But when we're in Genesis 12, that area of our lives, we feel distant that we can't approach him, that we need to get our act together, somehow make ourselves acceptable before we can turn to God. But God's grace doesn't work like that. His grace is over us no matter where we are in our lives. You know, Hannah just shared her testimony, who, you know, before I chose this passage and anything, spoke about this very thing. 
in her mind, God was someone that she had to please, that she had to get her act together, be able to come before him with her, you know, her life all together, that she had to, to serve to, before she could serve him. The weight and guilt of her sin drove her away from God. But that's not just her story. I think we all, at some point in our Christian walk, and we still continue to struggle with this, this thinking, this lie in our head that when we're not doing well in our faith, God's grace is far from us. When we're not doing well in our faith, his love is far from us. But if you've been called by God, if your faith is Him in him today, his grace is upon you no matter where you are in your life. This grace meets you when you're at your best and when you're in your most dark, unlovable, unacceptable places in life. Dane Ortland uh, beautifully expresses this idea how God is with us even in our darkest places. He says this, We all tend to have some, po- some small pocket of our life where we have difficulty believing the forgiveness of God reaches. We say we are totally forgiven, And we sincerely believe our sins are forgiven, pretty much anyway. But there's that one deep, dark part of our lives, even our present lives, that seems so intractable, so ugly, so beyond recovery. God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down to those darkest crevices of the soul. Those places where we are most ashamed, most defeated. More than this, those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost and he saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. You cannot sin your way out of God's grace once you have been called by him. Once he sets his love on you, his grace is with you to the end. Some of us here today are trying really hard to get your lives cleaned up, to make yourselves look presentable before God, to make yourselves worthy to come before his presence. Church, those are lies. It's Christ who has made us worthy to come before the Lord. It is Christ's righteousness that cleanses us and gives us the ability to stand before the Lord, before God, unashamed. In your darkness, in your Genesis 12 days, do not run from God, but turn to him because his grace is over you. Next, the life that is called by God is not only a life of grace, but is a life of providence. Life of providence. Providence is defined as God upholding, governing, and directing all things that happen to the purpose of his will. To the purpose of his will. And this is what we have a picture of in this passage. If we look back to the story, verses 5 to 13, what we have is Abraham and Lot now coming out of Egypt, and they're really wealthy now. They have a lot of possessions. And wealth back then wasn't uh, just a number in your bank account that started getting higher and higher, but it meant that the things you own started taking up more and more land, your cow, your livestock, your shepherds, your servants. And so they got to a place where Abraham was like, this town is not big enough for the both of us. 
their shepherds, their, their, they would start to get in conflict over the land. So rather than this potential um, disagreement between the two families getting larger and bleeding into his relationship between Abraham and Lot, Abraham made the decision. Because he loved Lot so much, he said, we're going to need to split ways. And what he does is he gives Lot the first choice. And this is not a small matter that we can look over. Abraham is giving up his right as a patriarch to choose the best for himself. If any of you are a second child, you probably know very well what this feels like, right? First child always gets the best pick, the, the, the best clothes, the whatever, right? And the second child always gets what's left over. Even more so in this day and age, right, in the Bible, where the patriarch of the family, it was Abraham's right to take the better land. But he humbles himself because he's beginning to trust in God. And he says, Lot, you go ahead. You pick the land that you want. And so Lot looks out and he sees the better land. The better land is described like the garden, the garden of Eden, that it's excellent. It's well watered. It's fertile. Life is thriving. And Lot knew that if I go there, I can expand my wealth. He was, decide, he was picking his decision based upon what the eyes could see for a selfish interest. But then it's quickly, quickly followed up with this ominous note as soon as it tells us that Lot picked the land. It says, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The the land that Lot picked was right on the edge of Canaan, right next to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in verse 13, he says, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord foreshadowing the difficulty that Lot and his family will come upon eventually for his decision. And spoiler alert, it does not go well for Lot. Now let me ask an important question. When Abraham gives Lot this land or the decision and Lot makes the decision to go to the east into this wonderful land, do you think God was looking down above saying, I hope he chooses the east? That God is crossing his fingers and saying, Go this way. Go this way. Absolutely not. God knew what Abraham would do, and he knew what Lot would choose, and God was using it to fulfill his plan. God had given Abraham a promise to his family that Christ would come from his family, that the Messiah would come and bless the world. And God had every intention on making that promise come true. And he was using the events that are happening right here to ensure that his promise would be fulfilled. What we don't see behind this decision is that eventually Lot's family would go up towards the border. And what he would do, or what Lot would eventually father the Moabites and the Ammonites. If you know your Old Testament, they're not the best of neighbors to the Israelites. They're all about violence, idolatry, and immorality. And so in Lot's decisions, God's providence was leading these peoples away from the Israelites who needed to be protected and preserved so that eventually Christ would come. God's providence was working in these events as Abraham gave Lot the option and Lot chose to go to the better land. The, things about, the thing about providence over our lives is that it is often difficult to understand in the moment. To Abraham, 
in that moment, it was very difficult for him to accept and understand his nephew taking the better land. It would have been bitter for him to see his nephew so selfishly choosing the better land. He could not see exactly what was going on. But in the midst of it, God was working his wonderful plan of redemption. John Piper says this, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. God is doing 10,000 things in your life, and you're probably aware of just three of them. Abraham's experience was like this. He was aware of God's promise. He was aware of his failure in Egypt. He was aware that Lot has, is taking the better land, and he might have a financial loss from it. But what he couldn't see was this amazing story of redemption that God was ensuring would happen through these events. And the same thing is true in our lives. That he's orchestrating the story of our lives into the greater plan of his redemption. A lot of times we're not going to understand the things that we're going through. But he is working it for, is working it in his providence for his story of redemption. Abraham had that call in his life. He had a specific role as the one who received the covenant, but he had that call just as we have that call as well as God's people. That he's providentially working the things in your life for his plan. Many of you have come out to Korea, uh, and I speak with a lot of these people, a lot of you that have felt this sense of purpose on your life, that God has brought you out here for a reason. And you start off very kind of uh, with a lot of passion, like, I'm here in Korea for this reason. I'm going to be serving God as a teacher. I'm going to be serving this nation, uh, serving the youth or, or the homeless or whatever it might be that you, God has placed on your heart. We start with such zeal and such passion in the beginning, but eventually, as time goes by, what tends to happen? We start to lose the sight of that vision. Our, our, our passion starts to wane a little bit. And there's a lot of different reasons for it. Maybe it's because things are not working out the way you th- had planned in your mind. Well, things were not working out the way things uh, Abraham had planned in his mind when Lot took the better land. Or sometimes we resign ourselves to think maybe God can't use it because of a struggle with certain sin in our lives that we've somehow... Um, discredit ourselves, and God can no longer use us. But much like Abraham, he was still used by God, even though his failings, even though he was a man of faith, and he was unfaithful, and he went back and forth. Think of the purpose that God has given in your life. What is that today? Is your heart still on fire for serving him and what he has called you to do? Whatever obstacle or stumbling block you may have, rest in his providence. That these events that are going on in your life that seemingly don't have a purpose or you can't completely understand, God is still working it and using it to use you in his plan of redemption. He's using it for your salvation and for the salvation of others to bring him glory. And finally, the life that is called by God is a life of promise. Look down with me and read verses 15 to 18. 
For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. What's remarkable is what God does for Abraham after he parts with Lot. Again, it could not have been easy for Abraham to see Lot taking, taking the better land, to so quickly abandon him. But God comforts him with his promise. He reaffirms his covenant with him. Calvin, uh, John Calvin, a famous theologian, says it like this. There is no doubt that the wound inflicted by that separation was very severe, since he was obliged to send away one who was not less dear to him than his own life. When it is said, therefore, that the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted from him, the circumstances should be noted. It's as if Moses, the author of Genesis, said that the medicine of God's words was now brought to alleviate Abraham's pain. And thus he teaches us that the best remedy for sadness in this world is the word of God. Despite Abraham's failings and disappointments and the wounds that he just incurred, God reminds him of his promises, and he's comforted. He's reminding Abraham that he is faithful to keep his promises. What's interesting about this account of Abraham's life is the parallels that it actually has to the story of the Israelites in Egypt. If uh, Moses is the one who wrote Genesis, and he wrote it around the time when the people have come out of Egypt. And this story was used to be told to comfort his people who were going through difficult times and having doubts in God. Well, let's look at this story and the parallels with the, the story of the Exodus. How is it that Abraham entered the land of Egypt? It was a famine. Well, how did Israel end up in Egypt? It was when a famine came upon the land, and Jacob told his sons to go into Egypt. And they ended up staying in Egypt so they, they would survive. And when it came time for Abraham to leave Egypt, remember his wife was in Pharaoh's house. He needed to find a way for Pharaoh to let him and his people go. So how does God deliver him and his family out? In Genesis 12, 17, it says, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues, because Sarai, Abram's wife. It was through plagues that he freed Adam out of Egypt, and it would be the plagues that God would use again to free his people out of Egypt. And as Abraham did so, he left with his pockets full. And so did the Israelites as they were freed from the land of Egypt. These accounts, they point to another story. Much later on, there would be a, a child who would flee to the land of Egypt to escape the terror of King Herod. And eventually he would leave the land and go back into the land God has promised his forefathers. And the child would then grow up, suffer the worst plague of all, death. He would hang on the cross and suffer to free his people from sin and death. And there's no coincidence that these stories have common threads. Abraham's life, Israel's exodus from Egypt, it's all pointing us 
to Jesus. These are stories to show that God is faithful to keep his promises, that he will send a savior to save his people. Abraham and the men of the Old Testament, the women of the Old Testament, they look forward to the promise of the Savior to come. But on the other side of the cross, we look back and we see that God has fulfilled his promise. He has sent his son to save us. And thus, we can be comforted knowing all the other promises God has given us in his scripture will be kept. The promise that we are given of a land as well. Not the physical land of Canaan, but a new heaven and a new earth that will come with Christ, where we will dwell with him in paradise. God is faithful to keep this promise, and it gives us comfort and security as we go through this world, struggling with our sin, struggling with the disappointments of this life. Hold on to his promises. For in our chapter 12 days, we are failing, when we are failing and not trusting in the Lord, and for our chapter 13 days, when we're living a life of worship and trust, we have a Savior who understands that we are going to be fluctuating back and forth between those two. Not only understands that we are fickle like this, he came himself to live that perfect life of worship and obedience and trust to God on our behalf. And that perfect life is now imputed to us. It is now ours. And for those days where we fail, he went to that cross for every single one of them, and he paid the price. Church, remember that when you are in Christ, when you have been called to faith, his grace is over you, no matter where you are in your life. Christ's blood has covered everything. Rest in him, trust in him, give yourself to be used for his kingdom and his story of redemption. Let us pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.